Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. It was interesting yesterday. Yesterday, I got my uh, economist for the week, and there's an article in here about um, the southern states and why the southern states in the United States are the uh, most religious states in the Union and why we have the highest divorce rate, the highest out-of-pregnancy rates, the highest rates of gonorrhea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I was actually trying to figure out is why the evangelicals in the southern states were voting for a candidate that we won't mention. (laughs) But this paragraph was interesting. Another paradoxical aspect of the evangelical creed may contribute. Like other forms of Protestantism, only more so, it promises salvation by faith alone. Sin in this schema is both inevitable and forgivable. Wayne Flint, a historian and minister, adduces two Bible verses that are impressed on young Southern Christians. There is none righteous, no, not one. And for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sinning and seeking forgiveness, as long as they are mainstream sins, is a recognized path to God and a mark of faith. Hmm. Falling short is not a bar to worship, but an element of it. That philosophy and its political advantages were exemplified in Mr. Bentley's comments. He was the governor, I think, of Alabama, who after 50 years of marriage, anyway. As a human being, he said, I do make mistakes. His consolation was that the God who loves me loves me even through the mistakes. I thought it was interesting that the book of Romans gets quoted in The Economist, We're actually going to talk about that next week. When we talk about the fact that we are saved by grace, and that is true, but that doesn't mean that we are free to do our own thing. Okay? We'll talk about that next week. Two weeks ago, we started Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is a fabulous chapter. We talked about, what did we talk about? What do we have because we have been justified by faith? We have peace with God. We have been reconciled to God. And the first half of the chapter goes on to list the many things that we have because of the fact that we have been justified by faith alone. We spent most of our time talking about the fact that our suffering has meaning and purpose And that's real hard to understand. Today, we're going to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 5 of the book of Romans. But before you turn there, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Go find the first page of the book of Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds 
of the heavens and over the livestock and all over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them, told them to be fruitful and multiply, dot, dot, dot. And he said, it was very good. We, as human beings, were made in the image of God. That's cool. There's been lots of debate about what that means. Uh, People want to talk about God's creativity, our creativity, his um, spiritual nature, our spiritual nature. It doesn't matter for this particular discussion. Suffice it to say that we are different than the rest of the created order because we, as human beings, were made in the image of God. Rah, rah, life is good. But then something happened. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the ground of the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gave man a job to do. The job was to tend the garden. The garden was the world. Okay? Yes, there was a garden, but there was a world. And man was to subdue it and to multiply and to tend the garden. But in the middle of the garden, God put a tree. Traditionally, we refer to it as an apple tree. That's just tradition. It was a tree that bore fruit, and God said, don't eat of that tree. There was one command of what not to do, and that was to not eat of that tree. Chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, why did she think it would make her wise? because Satan had told her that it would. She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve were put in the garden. They were given a task. They were given one command of what not to do. Satan came and tempted them, and they sinned. Back to Romans chapter 5. The question we are going to address today is what happened to us when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree that God had commanded them not to eat? What we're going to talk about is the doctrine of original sin. The fact that we were in Adam when Adam sinned. Chapter 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Huh. What does this mean? The doctrine of original sin causes a lot of grief to a lot of people because it carries with it the idea that when Adam sinned, we sinned with him. 
That is what the doctrine says. There are several different views about what that means, at least two major ones. One is the fact that Adam, as the representative of the human race, was our representative, and when he sinned, we all suffered with him. This is interesting because the first thing people said, well, I didn't vote for him. He's not my representative. The reality is God picked him, and God's probably better at picking people than you are. I mean, it is sheer speculation, but I dare say if you or I were put in the same position, we would have made the same choice, if not somehow figured out to make it worse. That is one of the views. The second view is the natural headship of Adam, the fact that we were all biologically in Adam. And when Adam sinned, we sinned with him because of that biological connection. So, who is the only person ever born on this earth who did not have a father that was descended from Adam? Hmm, that's interesting. Jesus. It is interesting if you look back into, uh, well, you look back to Abraham, but looking ahead to the book of Hebrews, if you remember in the book of Hebrews, when Jesus is being presented as the great high priest, the author of Hebrews knows there's a problem. What is the problem? He's not from the tree, uh, tribe of Levite. You can't be a priest if you're not from the, tree, the, the family of Levite, except for the fact that there was a priesthood that preceded the Levites. Who was that? Melchizedek. It says in the book of Hebrews, and the story is actually from Genesis, but Hebrews gives us a discussion of it, that Abraham, after rescuing Lot, on his way back, this priest, hmm, Melchizedek, and there's all kinds of discussions of who this priest is, came and Abraham gave sacrifice to Melchizedek. And it says, even though Levi was in Adam. Hmm. I mean, Abraham. What does it mean that he was in Abraham? He was going to be a descendant. So Levi was giving sacrifice to Melchizedek, showing the importance of Melchizedek. So it's not that odd to think of the fact that we were in Adam, and when Adam sinned, we sinned with him. Why is this important? Why do we care? We care for one particular reason. We're going to talk in the whole book of Romans from here forward about what it means to be in Christ. Okay? We've already brought up the fact that we have received Christ's righteousness his righteousness has been imputed to us. His righteousness has been given to us if we are in Christ. The rest of chapter 5 is a comparing and contrasting of what it means to be in Christ 
and what it means to be in Adam. If there is no original sin, if there is no imputed sin, how can there be imputed righteousness? That is the parallel and the contrast that is being set up. Now, there's actually a third view that some people hold, that Adam was simply our model, and we copy him by all sinning just like he did. That happens to be somewhat true, because we all do sin. But it isn't really what the chapter is talking about, because if that's the true statement, if we copy Adam by sinning, thus bringing death, do we have to copy Jesus in order to be righteous, in order to obtain eternal life? We know that doesn't work. We know that we can't be righteous. So for the parallel to work, something had to happen to us when Adam sinned. Huh. So the question is this. Are you a sinner because you sin? Or do you sin because you are a sinner? The answer is the second one. You're giving my answer, which is yes. I drove one of my, my daughters crazy this week. She, she sent me this question. I get these most random questions from my kids. The middle of the day, I get this text message. Okay, Joshua's going into the promised land. This person shows up and says, you know, they have this discussion, whose side are you on? We talked about this last year. And it's the commander of the army of the Lord. And my daughter says, is that Jesus or is that an angel? And I answered her, yes. <laughs> Which one is it? <laughs> yes. Are we a sinner? Because we sin, or do we sin because we're a sinner? Hmm. The answer is yes. But which one comes first? We are born into sin. G.K. Chesterton says he doesn't understand why people have trouble with the doctrine of original sin, since it's the only Christian doctrine that can be proven with empirical evidence. <laughs> But we really don't believe it. We hold on to this idea that we are innocent. I've told you this story before. I was listening to a uh, talk by a Presbyterian. He's actually a theologian, but he's also a pastor. And he was filling in at this church one day as the pastor. And they were going to do an infant baptism. You know, in the Presbyterian church, they do that. And he says, that's fine. And... Um, the elder who's instructing him on what they're going to do said, and we always give a white carnation to the mother of the child to demonstrate, to illustrate the innocence of the child. To which the pastor responded, then what does the baptism represent? <laughs> we have bought into this idea that goes back at least as far as Rousseau, that we in our natural state are innocent and without sin, and somehow, some way, society corrupts us. 
we like this idea because it means that if we change society, we can perfect humanity when the reality is the problem is with humanity. And when you start to change society to perfect humanity, what you end up usually doing is killing a lot of humanity because they get in your way. But that's a whole philosophical, political discussion that we will avoid. With all that introduction, let's go work our way through the second half of chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, this is not stated as something we need to discuss. This is stated as a fact. Sin came in through Adam. Now, at this point, if we wanted to cause a lot of trouble, we'd have a discussion about why we're talking about Adam and we're not talking about Eve. Didn't Eve go first? Well, that may be true. It is true. But Adam was responsible. Adam ate and he was not supposed to eat and he was the representative of all of us. We were all in Adam. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, what did God tell Adam and Eve would happen the day that they ate of the fruit? In the day you eat of it, you will die. Question, did they die the day they ate of it? Yes, sort of. Okay, Spiritually, they died. Physically, they began to die. You know that... Hmm? It took a while, but eventually, physically, they died. So what came about because of Adam and Eve eating the fruit was immediate spiritual death and the entrance of physical death into the human race. If they had not eaten of the fruit... They would have lived forever. It's interesting, if you keep reading in there, when they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, one of the reasons they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden is so that they would no longer be able to eat of that other tree that is also mentioned, the tree of life. There's a whole different discussion right there. Death came because of sin. When someone dies, it is because of sin in this world. Now, watch what I am not saying. After 9-11, there was a huge debate caused by some uh, Christian ministers saying things they shouldn't be saying, that certain people were more or less guilty than others, that's why they died. Okay? That's a horrible thing to say. If somebody wants to ask, is this death the result of this sin, if you're not a prophet, I would stay away from that question. Okay? But if they ask, is death the product of sin, the answer is yes, without a doubt. It is not given to me to understand which particular sin killed you. I don't know. We know that sin brought death into this world. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, 
Yet another problem we're not going to talk about. The word men in this context is all of humanity. Okay? Women, you're not off the hook. Sorry. When Adam sinned, we all sinned with him. Hmm. So, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. That's a strange sentence. When was the law given? Well, we talked about this back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. We know that God gave the law to Moses when he was on the mountain. Stone tablets, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt. Moses carried it down. It was the written law. That was the law given. But wait a minute. Weren't people dying before that? Yes. Did people still sin before that? Yes. Huh. Adam, to the giving of the law, people still died. If people still died, that still means they were guilty because sin is what brought death into the world. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. We have to make a distinction between the word sin and the word transgression. Sin is, well, in all of us. A transgression means I have given you a command verbally, thou shalt not eat of the fruit, or in writing, here are the Ten Commandments, and you have broken them. It isn't you either sin or you transgress. It is transgression is an elevated form of sinning. It's worse we talked about this in chapter 2. You remember? There were those who sinned, then the law was given, and all it did was show us how guilty we really were. What it did was illuminate to us what our hearts already knew to be right and wrong, but in our life we had chosen to reject it. That's the whole point of the second half of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. We should have known. We chose not to know. We suppressed the truth. So God gave us the law in written form so we are without excuse. I hate to tell you this. We're on the other side of the written law. We are without excuse. But we were without excuse before the written law showed up. And we know that because death was in the world. That's the point that he's making here. Death was in the world between Adam and Moses. It wasn't that the law, the giving of the law, the causing of the transgression is what brought about our death. We were already dying because we sinned in Adam. Hmm. Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. Who is the one who was to come? Jesus. The first Adam, the second Adam. The one who brought death will continue. But the free gift is not like the trespass. 
What is the free gift? Eternal life, the righteousness of Christ given to us. It is not like the trespass. What is the trespass? Thou shalt not eat of the tree. You ate of the tree. You trespassed the law. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Wow, what is that saying to us? He's contrasting the gift that was given to us through the work of Jesus Christ and the penalty or judgment that was given to us because of the work of the first Adam, Adam. Adam sinned, we sinned. Because we sinned, we are guilty. Because we are guilty, we die. End of story. Unless God did something. For if many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There's another long, lengthy discussion we, ha- we could have that we're not going to have today. We might have it later when we get to chapter 9 about the many who died because Adam sinned. This is an easy question. All of humanity, okay? There have been a couple of exceptions, and they were exceptions, okay? So if all of humanity died because of Adam's transgression, who is saved because of the work of Jesus Christ? Hmm? Oh, you're changing the answer, though. Wouldn't it be all of humanity? And there are those who believe that. A well-known Christian pastor a couple of years ago got into a lot of trouble because he wrote a book where he said, eventually, everyone is going to be saved. If all fell when Adam sinned, all will be saved because of the work of Jesus Christ. Huh. Maybe not. Who is it that died with Adam? All those who were in Adam. Who are those who received the gift of eternal life and justification by faith alone? Those who are in Christ. And we'll have to have a long discussion of who is in Christ. But there is a distinction. The other way of looking at this is to say that everyone fell when Adam sinned, and Jesus' gift, his death, provided salvation to all who would believe. So the opportunity was there, even though some, because of their sin and disbelief, chose to not accept it. 
we'll get into a long argument about that when we get to predestination and we talk about the doctrine of <coughs> limited atonement. But that's not today's lesson. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one transgression, one transgression brought condemnation. That seems kind of petty on God's part, doesn't it? I mean, one sin and you're going to kick me out of the club? How much sin does it take to prevent us from entering the presence of a holy God? One. One transgression brought condemnation, but the free gift following many transgressions, how many transgressions occurred between Adam and Eve's first sin and Jesus Christ's death on the cross? How many sins occurred? Come on, give me a number. A bunch of them. I have no idea. It's like trying to figure out how many sins you commit in a day. I don't have a calculator that big. One transgression produced condemnation. But there wasn't just one transgression. There were an infinite number of them. A very, very, very large number of transgressions. And in spite of that... Christ's gift brings justification. Remember the lesson two weeks ago? While we were yet sinners, it wasn't like there was a pile of sin that was so big, God just shook his head and said, you're hopeless. It didn't matter how big the pile was. One transgression was enough to bring death, but an infinite number of transgressions could not keep the gift of salvation from being effective for if because one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man jesus christ one man's transgression brings death how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace? I like that phrase, the abundance of grace. How much grace did we get? We've had this discussion before. We've used all kinds of little analogies. You know, I begin to think that, you know, I only send this much, but you should see that guy over there. He's a big sinner. It takes a lot of grace to save him. That's just arrogance on my part. I sinned and sinned and sinned. And then when I knew what I ought to do, I kept sinning. But the grace was abundant. The grace was enough. Huh. Don't ever think that you have sinned so much that the grace of God cannot save you. But you might also want to remember that don't think you've sinned so little that you don't need the grace of God. We have all sinned. 
We are all guilty. We all require grace. Not only do we require grace, we require an abundance of grace that Jesus offers to us. The abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. What does that mean, free gift of righteousness? I mean, we start at the end, righteousness. We've had long discussions about righteousness, being made right with God. God gives that to us in Jesus Christ. It is a gift. He doesn't, it isn't something that we have earned. It is a gift given to us. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We'll get to that in the next chapter. It's not something we earned. It is a gift to us. But he tacks on the word free in front of it. What does it mean that it is free? Well, we think of free in a couple of different ways. One, it didn't cost anything. Question, did the gift that Christ gave us cost something yeah it cost a whole lot so that's probably not what the word free means in this context we talk about the word free meaning that it was chosen freely that's interesting because sometimes i would never say that you have done this before sometimes we give gifts in a not totally free manner have you ever done this, you know, some friend of yours gives you a gift and you didn't really want to give them a gift, but now you feel you have to give them a gift because they gave you something? You would never do that, right? You know, your fourth cousin, once removed, is getting married and you have to give them a wedding gift. You don't really want to, but you know, it's expected, so you do it. I had a long discussion last weekend at Easter about first cousins, once removed, and what all that means. But that's a whole different lesson, too. Is that what God, Jesus, is doing here? He doesn't want to really save us, but he has to because, you know, what else am I going to do? They've all sinned. They've all messed up. I've got to save someone or heaven's going to be rather lonely. Woe is me. I guess I'll know. What it means when it says it is the free gift that God with no compulsion, freely gives us what we did not deserve, earn, merit, have any claim to at all. It was a free choice of God to give it to us. Hmm. Free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There's that same discussion that we had just a moment ago, remember? One provides for all. Does the other provide for all? And that's what produces some to think that everyone will be saved. The distinction being those who are in Adam all of us, and those who are in Christ, those who have accepted Jesus Christ. One trespass, one act of righteousness. What was the one act of righteousness on Jesus' part? Wasn't he righteous more than once? Wasn't he righteous repeatedly? Didn't he never sin? All that's true. 
But the one act of righteousness was his death to pay the penalty for our sin. That one act of righteousness brought justification. It allowed us to be declared right before God in the same way that that one act of trespass on the part of Adam condemned all of us to sin. For as by the one man's disobedience, the one the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It is interesting, first off, here we begin talking about disobedience and obedience. Who was Adam disobedient to? Come on, this is easy. God. Who was Christ obedient to? God. Don't you remember the garden before he was crucified? If it's possible, go to plan B. But not my will, but your will be done. It was an act of obedience to God the Father. It is also interesting, the many will be made righteous. This is not necessarily talking about the imputed righteousness that we've been talking about. This is the righteousness that will be the end result of salvation. You know, we've talked about the fact that the word salvation, when used in the scriptures, has a couple of different connotations. It can talk about the act of justification, where we are declared righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is salvation. But it's also used in a broader context where we talk about justification, sanctification, where we are in this life working out what Christ has put in, and glorification where we get to heaven and that final remnant of sin is removed from our lives. We will be righteous. We will not sin when we get to heaven. That's what we're talking about here. We'll see it later. He who begins the work will complete the work. He who declared us to be righteous will in fact make us righteous and remove the taint of sin that is still in our lives. Wow. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. We've talked about this. The law came to make us more guilty. It wasn't like we were all good and perfect and one day the law showed up and we decided to become wretched human beings. No, we were wretched human beings and we just didn't know it. And God said, you want to know what right and wrong is? I'll tell you. You should have known, but now I'm going to tell you what right and wrong is. The law came to increase the trespass. Why did we need it increased? We'd gotten kind of used to it. We'd kind of gotten to the point where we didn't realize we were sinning. And God said, eh, I'll fix that. I'll make sure you are completely without excuse. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Hmm. Sin 
increases and grace gives up. No. Sin increases and grace abounds more and more. Woohoo. We're going to begin to get ready for next week's lesson. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, where the trespass, where the guilt increased, grace abounded so much more. Why is that a good thing? Why is that a good thing? Hmm? It gives us hope. There is no one, nowhere, at any time, who has sinned so much that God cannot save them. It isn't like there's a threshold, and once you exceed that threshold, you're beyond hope. Wait a minute, doesn't the scripture talk about an unforgivable sin? Yes, and I believe that is rejecting the Holy Spirit in your life. If you, till the day you die, reject the Holy Spirit, there is no plan B. There isn't. That is unforgivable. But as I say, and I've said before, as long as there is air in your lungs, you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But wait, you don't understand how big my sin is. No, God understands more than you understand how big your sin is. You don't have any clue how big your sin is. Those of us who sit in nice 21st century America with our nice petty little sins and think we're okay because our nice petty little sins are not as bad as those people over there, God knows. God knows what kind of sinner you are. And his grace abounds beyond that. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reign through righteousness. The grace that is given to us should produce righteousness in our daily life. The righteousness that has been given to us by Jesus Christ. The righteousness that has been worked out in our daily life by his grace. The righteousness that we will have when we get to heaven by his grace. You get the point? It starts with grace. It's grace in the middle and it's grace at the end. That was the battle of the book of Galatians. We started with grace. Since we started with grace, let's set grace aside and do the rest of it on our own. No, you can't do that. It's grace at the beginning, grace in the middle, and grace at the very end. Now, I know what you're thinking. Huh. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Huh. If I sin more, I'll get more grace. 
wait a minute, you're laughing. If I sin more, I'll get more grace. What did the article in The Economist say? There are lots of those who believe that because we are saved by faith alone, hey, sinning's a good thing, right? Sinning brings about more grace. I sin more, I get more grace. I sin, I get more grace. Oh, life is good. I have the best of both worlds. I get to sin and I get the blessings of God doing it. Isn't that what it says? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I'll give you a hint by reading the first verse of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Let me give you the answer I gave you a couple of weeks ago. Heck no. (laughs) Remember that was the cleaned up answer? By no means. And we will talk about that next week. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22 says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, for as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. Just so you know that this isn't the only place this is talked about. Being in Adam may sound like it's unfair because it gives the idea that we had no choice in the matter. We were just born sinners. How can God accuse us of something that we didn't have a voice in? Well, first off, we'll have a long discussion about the word fair, but that'll come later. In case you're worried, by the time you're sitting in this room, okay, by the time you're sitting in this room right now, you've already blown it. Whether you sin because you're a sinner or you're a sinner because you're sinned, you're on the wrong side of the equation at this point in your life. The question is, if we are going to reject the idea of Adam's sin being imputed to us, are we also going to reject the idea of Jesus' righteousness being imputed to us? The scripture presents it as a set. You can take it or you can leave it, but you can't pick and choose. Conclusions. Adam brought sin into the world because when Adam sinned, we sinned with him. That is the idea of imputed sin. When sin came into the world, death came also. Christ, the last Adam, brought righteousness to those who are in Christ. That is imputed righteousness. And when sin increased, grace increased all the more. Does that mean that we should sin more so that we will get more grace? That's next week's lesson. But I have one more point to make before we dismiss, even though we are out of time. There is this idea that if you believe in the doctrine of original sin, you think everybody's bad, okay? And you think everybody's bad, you're going to treat them in a cynical way, And you're not going to be nice to people. We do want to be nice to people, even though nice is one of those nebulous words that we should avoid. That's why I read the passage in Genesis chapter 1 first. Here's the remarkable thing. Every 
human being that you come in contact with. Every single one of them. That person you are rude to, that person you cut off in traffic, the person you send the nasty email to, every human being is made in the image of God. They are made in the image of God and have more worth and dignity than any other created thing in this universe because we're made in the image of God. Yet, we all have sinned. And we as believers get to live in that balance between acknowledging the fact that people are sinners while still acknowledging the fact that they are made in the image of God. We don't put on our rose-colored glasses and pretend that everybody's innocent and perfect because they're not. But we also don't put on our, whatever the opposite of rose-colored glasses, and believe everyone's wicked and evil and should be stamped out at the earliest possible moment because they're made in the image of God. It's interesting because we as human beings tend to pick one of those camps. We want to be like Rousseau and believe everyone is innocent and that society corrupted them. But we can't because we know too many mean people. Or we want to believe that everybody's mean and nasty, but then we know people who are doing good things in the eyes of the world. Why is that? Because they're made in the image of God. Why do they do the bad things? Because they're sinners. How are we to treat people? As much as is possible, be at peace with all people. We can't fall into the naive position that all people are good and perfect. But we can also not fall into the cynical position that all people are evil and wicked. We are to be wise, but we are to love those around us. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that though Adam sinned and we sinned with him, that the life and death of Jesus Christ provides salvation for all of us. I pray, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would rest in your grace, for it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.